Okay, so we're in Matthew chapter 16. If you'd like sermon notes, there are some printed in the back there on the table, also online in the YouTube video in the description. You can click the link there and you will be seeing what I'm seeing in the notes, all right? So, wait, I need to get my timer going. All right, we all need that. I heard an amen from Heather over there. (laughs) So in verses 1 to 12 of this section, uh, Matthew 16, um, we're going to start, we're going to look, start at verse 13, but the first 12 verses before that, what you see is what we've been seeing a lot in this part of Matthew, which is a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of confusion, and a lot of resistance to Jesus, along with the real kind of seekers in the middle of that, right? The Pharisees are testing Jesus with their really shallow, manipulative questions. And in this case, they're requesting Jesus to do more signs. Like, can prove to us you're the Messiah. And it's sort of like, like was, was, was me feeding 5,000 people twice with just a handful of loaves and fishes not enough? Like, what more do you want? And so he rebukes them for even asking such a question in verses 1 to 12, and his 12 disciples seem constantly confused and comically thick-headed. All right, that's sort of the situation. If you or I were looking at this, if they had like a, a, a church missiologist or expert like look at the situation in Jesus's leadership team, they would say, Jesus, you probably need to fire all of them and start over. Like these guys are not getting it. And neither is the crowd. It's not generally positive, but Jesus seems totally undeterred. And we're going to see what happens here, which is where this situation begins to turn. And it's not because of the disciples' awesomeness. It's because God reveals something to them. Okay? So let's look at um, Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, or replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. That's not a standing order. That changes. But at the moment, Jesus is not ready to die. It's not time yet. That's why he says that. You see him say that occasionally. All right, so just a quick note about verse 19. I'm going to deal with that in a couple of chapters. Over in chapter 18, where it's quoted, essentially. And it's a very difficult text to translate. There's a couple of issues that we need to look at, and it's very often misunderstood. I am not opening that can of worms this morning. I'm going to open that can of worms in chapter 18. Okay, where it's a little easier to understand there because you get an application. Okay, um, so we'll deal with that then. So I'm not avoiding it. 
Um, it's just I'm putting it off, all right? <laughs> Chapter 18. So Jesus, in this question, notes the various opinions about him. He says, what do people say about who I am? What's, what's the temperature of the culture in regards to me? And they kind of give some answers, and then he says, okay, but what do you say? Who do you say that I am? What's your opinion? And Jesus is not asking this like, he's not being a relativist, okay? He's not saying, what's your truth, right? He's not saying, whatever you think I am, I am. He's saying, he's testing them to find out what they actually believe, okay? So don't import your cultural weirdness into the question, okay? Because there is a right answer to that question, and there is a wrong answer. Because this question and your answer to this question is the most important question you could ever be asked. It is the question that defines you as a person. It is the biggest question, the most important question for you to answer. And your thoughts about this question and what you believe about this question is the most important thought and belief you could have. It is the difference between eternal death and eternal life. It is the difference between light and dark. It is the difference between being deceived and broken and lost and being found by him. It is the question that you need to answer. There is no more important question than this. So the disciples had joined up with Jesus in hopes that he was the Messiah. And then they, there's this sort of slow, gradual, you know, more and more understanding. More, there's like ups and downs. It's not an even slope. They have highs and they have lows. Peter is a wonderful example that every time you see Peter winning, you also see him losing. <laughs> right? He walks on water and he sinks like a stone. We'll see that here in just a second. Right? He's going to have a great moment, and he's going to have a really bad moment. But Peter is the first disciple that gets the answer to this question right. Because he says, when he says, who, who do you say that I am? Verse 16, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does Jesus say? He said, you're right, I am, and you didn't come up with this on your own. The Father revealed it to you. I think this is wonderful because Peter is probably the most thick-headed disciple of them all. He is the slowest, the most impulsive. He seems to be just, he doesn't get it, he doesn't get it, but he doesn't get that he doesn't get it. He's very confident in his ignorance. It's a terrible combination. Self-assured ignorance. Those are the most annoying people in your life, aren't they? Aggressive ignorance. I have no idea what I'm doing, and I'm happy with it. And they love spouting their opinions when they know nothing that they're talking about. That is Peter's M.O. He is impulsive, and it misses the mark all the time. Yet who is it that the Father reveals this to first? It's the knucklehead. Isn't that fantastic? I mean, it's not fantastic if you're not a knucklehead. But for the rest of us knuckleheads... This is great news. It wasn't the, the, the competent math numbers guy like Matthew that got it first. It wasn't John, his best friend. It's Peter. 
I think the reason for that is so that it was obvious to everyone who revealed it. It was not Peter who worked it out. It was Peter who just was standing there, probably staring blankly at the wall, wondering why something, just being confused, and all of a sudden, thunk, boom, the Holy Spirit just whacks him upside the head and says, he's the Messiah. That's great news. He's the first to openly confess that Jesus is the Messiah. By the way, Peter's name is interesting. It's not his actual name. It's sort of a nickname. It's sort of unclear whether or not Jesus changes his name or just gives him a nickname. But Peter, it's a play on words. It's a, it's a little bit of a, a jab, right? A playful jab because Peter in Greek sounds just like the word rock in Greek. Petros and Petra. They, when you say them, they sound almost the same. So Jesus says, you're a rock. Not like the rock, the famous guy we always want, all want to be like. Rock as in a stone, a lifeless stone. You are block-headed. That's your name now, Peter. But what does Jesus say? He says, yeah, you're you're Peter, you're a stone, a dead weight. But it's on this stone that I will build my church. And then you go and look at Peter his, in his book. He wrote part of the Bible. It's amazing that Peter pulled that one off. And what does Peter say that the church is? We're a bunch of living stones fit together to build the temple that is the container for the presence of God. Peter, Peter gets it. He gets this whole stone thing, right? Okay, I can understand that, Jesus. I'm a stone. Yeah, yeah, funny, funny. But I'm a stone that you are using to build a foundation of the whole body of Christ, and we're all actually just a bunch of stones. It's an amazing privilege that he was given this revelation first. I think it's honestly mind-blowing. Peter's name is actually Simon, and just Peter is sort of a nickname. So, notice that Jesus doesn't say that Peter will build the church. He says, you are the material on which I will build. Jesus is doing the building, okay? Peter just gets to be the raw material, the, the first one out of the gate. And Peter becomes a big deal. He's always still a little knuckleheaded. He doesn't completely lose that. It's not like all of a sudden he's like not Peter anymore. But Peter is the one who stood up on Pentecost and preached the first sermon and saw the first, what, two to 3,000 converts brought into the church in one sermon. He's the guy who was the first, he preached the first sermon in the first church on the planet. Peter, of all people. He had no business standing up and doing that was not him, it's that the Father had revealed who Christ was to him. Peter's the material, he's the slab that Jesus puts the church on top of. That tells you your place, right? You're not the point, you're not the thing. The pastor is not the point, he's not the thing. The name outside, the organization of the church, how awesome we are, how we are not the thing. Jesus is the thing and he's building the thing, right? This church does not belong to me. 
doesn't belong to the elders of this church. It belongs to Christ, and he's building it. We pray this every time we have an elders meeting. God, we don't know what we're doing. This is your church. It's an honor to be here. This must be what Peter felt like, right? No idea. Pray that over your family. God, I don't know what I'm doing. Kids are weird. Your spouse is weird. Goes both ways, all right? The whole thing's confusing. God, I feel like Peter. I don't know what I'm doing here. But I'll just be the, I'll be the rock that you build this thing on. This question defines your identity. Who do you say I am? It's the most important question. And Peter got it right, not because Peter's awesome, because God the Father revealed it to him. So now we have Peter's moment of triumph, an amazing moment of triumph that really he couldn't own, and then is immediately followed by a complete failure. <laughs> right? So let's look at Peter's horrible failure together and be encouraged. Verse 21 to 23 from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So this is a startling announcement from Jesus. As far as I can tell, it's the first time he's explicitly told them, this is what's going to happen to me. It's bad news. So on the heels of this great revelation that he is the Messiah, he's the chosen one, he's come to deliver us from Rome and put us back on top like we were back in the days of Solomon and David. It's going to be awesome. And then he says, and by the way, i got to go to Jerusalem and they're going to torture me and they're going to kill me. Verse 22, Peter, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter. Peter rebukes God. That should be the heading of this section. <laughs> he began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned, and he being Jesus, he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me or a stumbling block, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God or on the things of man. It's a strong response. Get behind me, Satan. This is Almost the same phrase as when Jesus was tempted in the desert. He said to Satan, away with you. It's the same idea. Get away from me. I'm done. What did Satan tempt Jesus with in the desert? He tempted him to lay hold of his kingship without the suffering. To bypass the suffering. To stop being hungry and grab hold of his right to the throne of God with, and get around the suffering. And that's when Jesus says, no, no, no away with you. And here Peter does the same thing. He says, not you, Jesus. You take the throne, and you don't need to suffer. You're the Messiah. You're divine. Why would God suffer? Don't do it. Just bypass it. Just be the man without suffering. And Jesus says, get away from me, Satan. I wonder how Peter felt. That must have been like a Knife to the heart. Did you, did you just call, are you talking to me? <laughs> that, get away from me, comma, Satan, as though I am Satan? What, is he, what did he say? Jesus explains it. says, you're thinking the thoughts of Satan, not the thoughts of God. 
Just a minute before, Peter is thinking the thoughts of God. He come, this revelation about Jesus as the Messiah, he sees it. And because he's thinking the thoughts of God, the Father reveals it to him. He thinks God's thoughts, and he says what God said. And now a moment later, he's thinking the thoughts of Satan. And he's rebuking God for saying he's going to suffer. This just feels like my life. I mean, maybe, I hope I'm not the only one. Based on the nods, I think we're all kind of identifying with these ups and downs, like swings, violent swings from moments of heroic faith to moments of horrible failure, sometimes in the same breath. And you wonder why God puts up with you. He puts up with you because he loves you and he gets more glory out of giving this, these precious revelations to messed up people than giving glory to people who look like they figured it out on their own. Our testimony should be as a church, how in the world are those people still around? How are they still a thing? How do they get where they're going? How, how is it that that pastor is still there and still doing it? How is this working? It's confusing. How is your life working? It's not you. It's that God keeps revealing things to you, and you, like a thick-headed Peter, just stumbling along like a big stone rolling down a hill. And somehow God pulls it together for you. This is the church. That's why the idea of trying to make ourselves look more professional, I feel like it's silly. Jesus then doubles down on what he just said to Peter. Look at verse 24 to 28. So he's been talking to Peter privately. He rebukes, Peter rebukes him. He rebukes him back. And then Jesus turns and talks to the whole group of disciples. He says, verse 24, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You can imagine Peter's face as Jesus says this. Not only is Jesus refusing to bypass his own suffering, to lay hold of his own kingship as the Lord and Savior, but he then says, and all of you also need to take up your cross and follow me. A cross is like, we have one here on the wall. It's easy to miss what it is. The cross is an instrument of torture. It is a horrible, violent, bloody way to die. Jesus is not saying, take up your cross, like hang one around your neck as a pendant to, you know, bear witness that you're a Christian. He's saying, pick up your suffering in my name, willingly throw it over your shoulder the way I am, and follow me into it. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what I mean by Jesus doubles down 
You imagine Peter going, what? This is not what I signed up for. I signed up. None of us knew what we were signing up for when we became a Christian. Like, you can try to count the cost, but you don't know. It's not what Peter signed up for, but now Jesus is saying, look, this is what it means. This is what you signed up for, is to follow me into whatever I go into, okay? And that includes suffering. There's hope here, though. In the same way that Jesus has received the reward of his suffering, we will also what he says. This life, whatever suffering, whatever cross you have to bear in this life is so totally worth it beyond compare because why in the world would you avoid suffering to gain this life and then lose your soul? Why would you invest everything in avoiding suffering in this life, trying to live your best life now? Why would you do that and then spend eternity in suffering? He's like, that's silly. That's a stupid trade. Why not just take up your cross now and then for the joy set before you, endure it like I'm going to do so that you can experience eternal life and blessing in me. That's the trade we make. Everyone has a cross to bear. Not just some of us. Every single one of us. Everybody has a cross you've got to throw on your shoulder and carry, including your children. This is one of the hardest things about parenting, and it's one of the hardest things about marriage, is when you realize that your children have a cross to bear that you can't take off of them. And when you realize that your spouse has to carry a cross that you can't take off of her. There's no thing that you can do to make it better. You can pray, but if God has said... If God has ordained, this is your cross to bear. There's nothing you can do about it. Except tell them, for the joy set before you, endure it. Carry it. It's worth it. That's what you say. You don't say, Mommy will make it better. Because Mommy can't make some things better. What you do is you say, for the joy set before you, this life is not all there is. There's more. And if God doesn't take this off of you, I hope he does, but if he doesn't, then stand up under it because he will strengthen you for the race you've been called to run and you just follow Christ and do what he does all the way to the top of Golgotha and then all the way into the grave where you're risen again with him. So you follow Jesus wherever it takes you. Because his beauty and his glory and grace have been revealed to you just like it was to Peter. Because it's all you can do. Paul said it like this. He said, the love of Christ compels us or constrains us, depending on how you translate it. I am compelled by the love of Christ to endure this hardship because it was not easy for Paul and his compatriots in the ministry they were doing. It was very difficult. It was all sorts of hardship. Not just kind of persecution like martyrdom where you kind of, you're the hero of the story. It was also things like shipwrecks, being bitten by snakes, being beaten, being thrown into prison. It's all sorts of stuff. He collected all of that hardship into one big basket and said, it's all for Jesus. I am compelled by the love of Christ. The way Jesus said it was for the 
or Paul said it about Jesus, said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and its shame. What was the joy set before him? It was at the moment of his resurrection, he won you to himself. You are the reward of his suffering. Seems like not that great of a reward. <laughs> but he loves us that much, right? So beyond the cross, right? It's not just the cross. Jesus is careful to say this. He says, take up your, up your cross, but there's a reward. There's a reason. There's a thing coming that's better than the suffering. So we died with Christ, right? This is another Paul way of talking about it. We died with Christ. We were raised with Christ. You die, that's your cross. You're raised, that's the resurrection. That's good news. It's the same for us. For the joy set before us, we endure the cross. For the joy set before us, we are compelled by the love of Christ. We endure the cross for that. We look ahead to, I want Jesus. I want him. I want life with him. And if following him takes me through a death, so be it. And it all begins with this revelation. Who do you say that I am? It doesn't begin with you saying, I got this. I'll suffer for Jesus. You start sounding like Peter at a bad moment, not at a good moment. <laughs> Your answer is, I'll follow you anywhere. Jesus, if you take me into prosperity and comfort and safety and wonderfulness and ease, I'll go there. And if suddenly you turn and you lead me into the worst, darkest night of my soul, I'll follow you there too. And I will pray all the way through, spare me this. This immediately makes me think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Where he says, God, this is hard. I will follow you into the darkness. But can we not? <laughs> when the Father says, no, this is what we're doing, he bears up under it, cries tears of blood, and steps into the darkness. I don't want to get morbid. Being a Christian isn't horrible. There's joy. But sometimes we've got to take up our cross. Amen? So I would like to pray for two things. Uh, first, I'm, I just, you know, this question, who do you say that I am, is, is it's almost like that's a sermon by itself. So I want to take a minute maybe just to be quiet and let you answer that to Jesus as though he's asking you that right now. What's your confession? And I want to ask the Father to reveal to you the truth so that it's inescapable and that it's so solid in your own heart that whatever cross he calls you to bear, you'll bear it without hesitation. Because that's the key to that. So let's pray. God, I first ask you just right now, if there's anyone here that doesn't have that revelation that Peter had, who doesn't see what he saw and what those of us who were following you see, God, I pray that you would reveal it to them. We have all the same information Peter had. 
We've seen the miracles. We've seen the stories. We've heard the witnesses. God, I pray now that you would take us, anyone who needs it, to that next step of faith to say, you are the Messiah. You're the Christ, the Son of God. God, for the rest of us disciples, pray that we would have just a renewed faith in that simple confession. And God, that we would not hesitate at the next thing Jesus said, which is take up your cross then. Following me is not just about being on the inside getting a front row seat to the miracles and the awesomeness, it also means taking up your cross. God, I pray that we would rejoice in the moments, the mountaintop moments, that we'd also be willing to follow you into the valley moments. God, I pray for all of us here who are in different ways, in different seasons, at different times, carrying our cross and trying to do it faithfully. God, I pray that you would give strength God, that you would provide, God, an eternal perspective to those of us who are carrying a difficult burden right now. God, at no point we would trade this life for the next. That we wouldn't actually seek to gain the world but lose our soul. That instead we would see that this is a pearl of great price, it's a treasure we're selling everything for. Following Christ is the only way to live because the love of Christ compels us. God, we do pray that you would alleviate suffering. That you would lighten the load. That you would heal the sick and restore the broken. And give sight to the blind and raise the dead. and All of these things. We ask for that. We want that. But God, above all, I pray for endurance. Not because we're strong, but because we're weak. We need you, God. God, I pray for everyone in this church, no matter what comes in the future, no matter what cross they have to bear, that none would fall away, that none would drop their cross and abandon you. God, that you would put a strong zeal in our hearts to follow you wherever you lead us. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. Love you guys. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time.